0: 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 56, the 1919 Bible Conference, part 4. Last time we talked about the discussions at the 1919 Bible Conference about the prophecies, like the 10 horns and the daily and the eastern question, and how Daniel's really just wanted three things for Adventism. First, the ability to openly ask questions in a safe environment. Second, a willingness among Adventists to keep improving their beliefs by connecting them to the latest historical and biblical scholarship. And then third, a humble acceptance that, hey, we might be wrong about something, and that's okay. We all have dreams, Daniels. We all have dreams. We are... Finally, at the last of our four parts covering the 1919 Bible Conference, and we've spent a long time on this subject. But I hope you're beginning to see why, because almost every issue that they raised in 1919 is something Adventists are still dealing with in one way, shape, or form today. The case in point is what we are going to be discussing right now, the inspiration of Ellen White. Of course, inspiration was a big deal in the fundamentalist liberal controversy. I mean, what do Christians mean when they say the Bible was inspired? And this boiled down to two main positions on the question, at least as A.G. Daniel saw it. The first position is the verbal inspiration or mechanical dictation view. This is the view that God basically grabbed a Bible author's hand and forced him to write it the way that God wanted it to be written. That is, every word is inspired. The other view is what we can call the thought inspiration view. That is, God inspires the thought, and the author uses the best words to convey that idea, that thought. Now, these were the two major positions back then. And, of course, since then, the positions on inspiration have blossomed into many, 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 many nuanced types today. So for Adventists, this issue also included the question, what do Adventists mean when they say Ellen White was inspired? I mean, how does inspiration work? What parts of her writing were inspired? And what parts were just a woman writing? I mean, maybe you've never thought about it, but this is a really profound and difficult issue. Okay, let's say that Ellen White wrote you a Christmas card. And this Christmas card said... Merry Christmas. I hope you find what you want underneath the tree. Now, I doubt Ellen White would ever write it like that, but let's just pretend that she did. Was this card a kind, sentimental greeting from a nice church lady, or was this card inspired? I mean, could you take this card to your parents and say, Look, the church prophet said, "I had better get everything on my Christmas list under the tree this year, right? I hope you find everything you want underneath the tree." So the kid could use this to kind of like beat up his parents and 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 force them to get him things, right? Should we have taken the card that way as is a is a kind of spiritual prophetic command? And this discussion—forget the crazy example. This discussion was not had in a vacuum. I mean, in the past, you could just ask Ellen White what she meant. I mean, this happened a lot. Daniels told the story of a meeting he held in Scandinavia, and he met a man from Hammerfest, which I have long believed is the best name for a city or town ever. Anyways, it is one of the northernmost towns in the world, Hammerfest is. So this guy was trying to practice Ellen White's counsel, To eat fresh fruits and vegetables, a stone's throw away from the Arctic Circle. Okay, no meat, just fresh fruits and vegetables. And Daniels was positively shocked when he met this man. The man was white as a sheet. Daniels asked what he lived on being so far north, and the man replied, quote, I live a good deal on the north wind, end quote. I mean, no doubt, right? Daniels went back to America and told Ellen White about this guy, and Ellen White said, why don't people use common sense? Meaning, if you live in a place where it is literally impossible to grow fresh food, a place that is near the sea that subsists largely on potatoes and fish and dairy, then eat those things, okay? Like, there's no point eating yourself to death because you're trying to just kind of blindly follow Ellen White's words. So, why don't people use common sense, was her reaction to that story. Except Ellen White isn't around anymore to tell Avenas how to interpret her writings. So, the question of how she was inspired was intimately connected to the question of how we interpret her writings. And and many of the leaders at the conference didn't like how many Adventists were beginning to answer the question of inspiration. A. O. Tate spoke up and said he was concerned that some of the younger ministers were treating Ellen White's writings as equal to Scripture. Tate had no problems saying that this idea was from Satan himself, because the founders of this church never treated her writings as equal to the Bible. We'll talk about that in a minute. Tate's statement is genuinely striking because it implies a a kind of dangerous lack of nuance among the younger pastors, among other things, who were undoubtedly getting fired up by fundamentalism's black and white views of inspiration. Tate's Concern was shared by a number of people at the conference. William Worth, a teacher, said he couldn't go back to class and explain what he believes lest he, quote, certainly be discredited, end quote. Herbert Lacey painted a somewhat different picture of Adventist young people. Lacey taught at what is now known as Washington Adventist University. And if Tate believed that young Adventist pastors were becoming fundamentalist partisans, Lacey noted his students had, quote, A very peculiar, hazy conception, end quote, on the inspiration of the Bible and Ellen White. In other words, they didn't didn't really have a clear picture of how inspiration worked. And it very well may be that Lacey and Tate were describing the same problem in two stages, namely that because Adventist young people had a hazy idea of how inspiration worked, then it was easy for them to later on buy into the fundamentalist idea of biblical inerrancy that every word in the Bible is as as exactly as God meant it to be, and no one ever messed up or made a mistake, not even once. C.L. Benson, history teacher at Pacific Union College, said, quote, we had a man come to our union and spend an hour and a half on the evidences of the spirit of prophecy through Sister White. The impression was conveyed that practically every word that she spoke and every letter she wrote, whether personal or otherwise, was a divine inspiration. Those things make it awfully hard for our teachers and ministers, end quote. One gets the impression, listening to Benson, that there was an enormous amount of pressure on teachers to teach the mechanical dictation theory or else suffer popular shoutdowns, protests, angry letters from parents for teaching their kids astray. So teachers just kind of found themselves in the middle. When it came to using Ellen White's writings on food and diet and health and all that, Daniel's was exasperated with some of the attitudes out there, like our good friend from Hammerfest. Daniel said that diet matters, it's important, but that it should never be seen as a standard of righteousness. To to quote him, Daniel said, You take men who have never allowed a piece of animal food to pass their lips, and some of them are the most tyrannical, brutal men And when we try to reach them with the gospel, we have to tell them that is not the way to God, end quote. Daniels mentioned that he had warned Ellen White about making some of the statements she made about food, telling her how it would be prone to misinterpretation. But Ellen White had faith in people's common sense. Common sense on the issue, it seems by 1919 was lacking, at least according to Daniels. He said, quote, there are some people who are extremists, who are fanatical, but I do not think we should allow those people to fix the platform and guide this denomination, end quote. If you'd permit me to read between the lines in Daniels' statement, it's clear that those he considers extreme are a minority. They're not most Adventists. But you get the sense that this minority was Influential to the point where perhaps their influence was rivaling that of General Conference leaders. There was never any real danger of one of those types being elected General Conference president, but then again, you don't have to become General Conference president to have power, to have influence. What chagrined church leaders was the silly inconsistency of Adventists on this topic. It was noted that the Church published books with two different ideas of biblical inspiration. You had books, Exemplifying the mechanical dictation idea of inspiration, and you had books out there exemplifying the thought inspiration idea, and, and none of those books seemed to cause a stir. I mean, people just didn't seem to notice. But, but when a church leader might say something, like, hey, I don't think every literal word Ellen White wrote was inspired. I think some of it was just her thoughts. Then suddenly there's this chorus of voices booing that leader off the stage. And so so this whole toxic atmosphere just seemed so inconsistent, so unnecessary. And another time, Lacey said that he was at Mount Vernon Academy in Ohio, for our graduation. Lacey was talking with some of the students afterwards who confided in him their belief that none of the leaders in the general conference believed Ellen White was inspired. How is it possible that these students can go through four years of Adventist education and come out with that idea? And Prescott's reaction to Lacey's statement was this, quote, you are not telling us news, end quote. You are not telling us news? I mean, Prescott's phrase stands out for its it's dry, flat, matter-of-fact tone. We know. You're not telling us anything we don't already know. It's truly astounding to realize the chasm of misinformation and mistrust that existed between Adventist leaders at the General Conference and Adventist members in the pews. This is why Daniels called this meeting of church leaders and begged them to keep it private. This is why Prescott would bend over backwards time and time again at these meetings to assure everyone that he was loyal to the church's teachings. Please don't call me a heretic. They felt that there was a legion of Adventists watching them, waiting to interpret, to twist, to shine the worst possible light on everything they said. They were reacting at this Bible conference to the enormity of mistrust out there in Adventism. When you understand that, you can see the 1919 Bible Conference as something of an oasis, a place for church leaders to freely share their frustrations, to freely share their thoughts on subjects they would not be permitted to talk about in open company. It didn't take long, of course, for those who believed in thought inspiration to share their views. topic came up early on in the context of a man presenting his ideas on the 1260-year prophecy. And he was sharing all of these quotes from Ellen White's book, The Great Controversy. And then at some point, Herbert Lacey interrupts him and says, quote, that quote isn't in the newest edition of Great Controversy, end quote. And the presenter just seems to ignore Lacey and moves on. It's not that big of a deal, except it is. Because Adventists believed Ellen White was inspired when she published The Great Controversy back in the 1880s, but then it was updated in 1911, like we've talked about. So what does it mean when one Adventist is quoting Ellen White's words found in the first edition, but which were deleted in the second edition? Did she really say those words or not? Were they inspired in 1888, but not inspired in 1911? Are we no longer allowed to quote them? Does inspiration have a shelf life? I want you to try to picture a prophet in the Old Testament writing a letter to a king. And then 15 years later, the prophet gets his letter back and crosses out a few sentences. How do you interpret that? What does that mean? Does it mean that we pretend those lines never existed? Does it mean... Those lines are now obsolete? It's an interesting question, isn't it? W. W. Prescott, who helped revise the Great Controversy in 1911, believed that when Ellen White got history wrong, that the books needed to be updated to conform to the facts. Prescott was aware that talking about Ellen White being wrong about anything was controversial, not because Adventists believed she was perfect, but because, well, it seems indelicate. Let me try to illustrate that before we move on. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew quotes Jeremiah to talk about 30 pieces of silver being used to buy a potter's field, except, as many people have pointed out, Jeremiah never wrote that. You'll find that statement in Zechariah, not in Jeremiah. So it's possible Matthew just wrote down Jeremiah when he meant Zechariah. And this sort of thing isn't a big deal. It isn't a crisis of faith for most Christians. But if you walk around saying Matthew made mistakes, Matthew made mistakes, Matthew made mistakes, it can put Christians on edge. Yeah, we get that Matthew may have slipped up here, but going around talking about it in such a casual way makes people nervous because where are you going with this? We know the Bible writers weren't perfect, but many Christians are nevertheless protective of the Bible. And Adventists were much the same way about Ellen White. Yes, she made mistakes. Everybody knew she wasn't perfect, but let's not be too eager to start tugging at those loose threads. Now Prescott didn't mind tugging at loose threads. He believed the goal was to be historically accurate, was to be theologically accurate, was to be accurate in every single way. A.T. Jones in the 1880s would have agreed. For Prescott, Ellen White never claimed to be an expert in history or medicine or biblical interpretation. The weight of her inspiration was in her meaning, not always in the specific words she used. William Worth summed up this view when he said, quote, history was merely thrown in to substantiate the principles, end quote. That is, history was simply a way through which Ellen White made her point. So improving her history didn't materially affect belief in her inspiration. Now, on the flip side of that, I had a professor in seminary, Joanne Davidson, who once told us something like, Yes, Ellen White was not an expert in history, she wasn't an expert in exegesis or biblical languages or health, but once you go down that road, you have to ask, why then should we listen to her at all? Prescott in 1919 and Davidson in the 2000s reflect a kind of tension in dealing with the inspiration of Ellen White. On the one hand, you you allow that an inspired person can be wrong about some things, but cannot be wrong about other important things. And where the line is between those two, well, that's up for discussion, isn't it? Prescott gave some examples of his point. In the 1888 version of the Great Controversy, Ellen White wrote that Josiah Litch, a Millerite preacher, had successfully predicted the fall of the Ottoman Empire down to the day based on his interpretation of Revelation 9. Of course, Litch predicted the exact day, only 10 days before the event occurred. And the 1911 edition of the Great Controversy reflects that change. And to Prescott, this is a model, this is an example of how these things should work. It's just a minor date. It's just a minor fix. But it brings her writings in greater harmony with fact. The progressive view of Ellen White's inspiration was captured well by Lacey when he said this, quote, in our estimate of the spirit of prophecy isn't its value to us more in the spiritual light it throws into our hearts and lives than in the intellectual accuracy in historical and theological matters? Ought we not to take these writings as the voice of the Spirit to our hearts instead of as the voice of the teacher to our heads? And isn't the final proof of the Spirit of Prophecy its spiritual value rather than its historical accuracy?" Prescott's progressivism, they're summarized by that statement made by Lacey, soon painted him into a corner, however, because it sounds nice to talk about Ellen White as an inspired voice speaking to our hearts rather than a voice as a teacher speaking to our heads. Okay, that's, that's nice. But you got to wonder where you go with that, right? What, is that, what does that mean? Does it mean you can just kind of conveniently ignore certain things you feel are out of date or no longer relevant? What does that mean? Well, as the first discussion on the topic was winding down, Prescott wanted to weigh in on the 1260-day prophecy that was, after all, the original topic. Anyways, the standard Adventist dates for the 1260 days or 1260 years was between 538 A.D. to 1798 A.D. This was the period of papal supremacy. So how did Prescott get himself into a corner? Well, he said that he prefers the dates... 533 to 1793, just five years off those dates. Now, Ellen White was firmly on the record in favor of 538 to 1798. William Miller, same dates. But Prescott thought his dates rested upon better history, and Prescott was quick to say that that didn't mean he didn't believe Ellen White. After all, she was basing her interpretation of that prophecy on the best history she had but Prescott's position raises some serious questions. I mean, it's one thing for a prophet to be wrong about a historical date, you know, maybe saying, maybe saying that Columbus came in 1491 or something like that. But it's another thing to be wrong about a fulfillment of prophecy. And this is precisely why more conservative Adventists charged that Prescott's views undermined Ellen White's inspiration. Ironically, the more people like Prescott pushed for a thought-inspiration view, the more the mechanical-inspiration view looked attractive. After all, it was unclear. People were uncertain whether the thought-inspiration model could adequately protect Ellen White's writings from liberal criticism. That may seem like a really strange thing to say, but to put it another way, they were unsure of where The thought-inspiration model would lead. If Prescott could change the dates of this fulfillment of prophecy that Ellen White had agreed with, if he could say, well, she was wrong on her history, the history which undergirded the 538 to 1798 dates, if she was wrong on those dates, wrong on the dates of that prophecy, then what else can you can you pick at Ellen White about right i mean that's that's kind of the concern what else can you can you say she was wrong about was she wrong about another prophecy was she you know and 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 so that's the concern and and the more they they realized this thought inspiration thing is not clearly defined we don't know what the rules are we don't know where this is going to lead and so that that led a lot of people no doubt to look at the mechanical inspiration view more attractively. Because we know what the rules are here. The rules are every word is inspired. Simple. Simple. Prescott's view looked like a slippery slope, and so he got called all sorts of names. And and Prescott was tired of being labeled a heretic by traditionalists. I mean, on, on almost every subject in 1919... Prescott would often go out of his way to affirm his love for the church and his agreement with its teachings. He would repeat this over and over and over, how he didn't want to be understood as some liberal trying to destroy the church. Such labels genuinely wounded him. Now, looking back, you can't call Prescott a liberal, not, not based on how the word was used back then. I mean, he, he fought against evolution. He railed against the papacy. I mean, he was the editor of a magazine, designed to rail against the papacy. He defended the physical resurrection of Jesus. But in an age where Protestants were polarizing between liberal and ultra-conservative camps, Prescott was left theologically homeless. And if you're not with us, well, then you're against us. Not all the progressives holding to a thought-inspiration view went as far as Prescott and pushing for different prophetic dates. Daniels, as usual, remained focused on the big picture. He wanted the environment of Adventism to be reformed. I mean, summing up the whole discussion, he just laid out his heart for the conferees there. I will tell you one thing, a great victory will be gained if we get a liberal spirit so that we will treat brethren who differ with us on the interpretation of the testimonies in the same Christian way we treat them when they differ on the interpretation of the Bible. That will be a good deal gained, and it is worth gaining. I do not ask people to accept my views, but I would like the confidence of brothers where we differ in interpretation. If we can engender that spirit, it will be a great help and I believe that we have to teach it right in our schools, end quote. Again, we see the old leader frustrated at the lack of trust in church leaders. He desperately wants to enjoy the confidence of Adventist people. He, he feels their trust being withdrawn, and that effectively cripples his ability to lead the church. The solution, according to Daniels, is, isn't fundamentally theological. It's a problem with Adventist teachers not passing on what they had learned about inspiration, which would have inoculated Adventists against being infected by the fundamentalist liberal war. Like I said, this, this was the view of the leaders and the teachers at the conference. If we had a bunch of letters from Adventists in local churches all across the world, we would have a more complete view. But we do know that as fundamentalist Christianity retreated further and further to the right. Many avenues were pulled with it. Because what was the alternative? Liberalism? The middle ground, occupied by men like Prescott and Butler, was eroding. Gone were the days of the Baptist theologian Augustus Strong, who once declared that, quote, "...a true doctrine of inspiration may admit mistakes." or at least the possibility of mistakes, in history and biographical statements, while it denies error in matters of faith and morals." That middle ground, reflected by that great Baptist theologian, that middle ground which used to exist in the 1800s and was shared by the Adventist pioneers, it was disappearing. And it's really a shame, because if the people who thought every word of Ellen White was inspired had actually read every word of Ellen White, they might have learned how she felt about the issue. Because she famously said in 1886 that, quote, the writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were Inspired. End quote. And she goes on and on and on, making her view of thought inspiration so overwhelmingly clear that you can't help but want to defenestrate anybody for misunderstanding it. Defenestrate means throwing them out a window, by the way. Bonus points if you knew that. What's more, at the 1883 General Conference session, the same one that set A.T. Jones up on a collision course with Uriah Smith, the delegates voted this statement, quote, We believe the light given by God to his servants is by the enlightenment of the mind, thus imparting the thoughts and not, except in rare cases, the very words in which the ideas should be expressed, end quote. Again, thought inspiration, the official view of the church in 1883. So what happened? I mean, what had changed in the past few decades? Well, of course, the world changed. But it also seems that the teachers in the Adventist church, the ones who were supposed to pass these ideas of inspiration, the ones who were supposed to teach these to the next generation, well, they just quite simply forgot. One conferee asked in 1919, if two students are arguing over what a Bible passage means, should the teacher then pull out Ellen White to support the position that he takes? Right? Should Ellen White be used as a tiebreaker in trying to understand the Bible? Daniels jumped on that question like an Aventist jumps on an open can of fried chick. Daniels calls this a terrible position to take and said that it is heathenish, right? It's pagan. If you need Ellen White to interpret the hard parts of the Bible for you, to be a kind of a tiebreaker, then what do you do with those people over in Romania, Daniel said, or or China? What have Christians done for 1,800 years before Ellen White came around? No, 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 no. The Bible is its own interpreter. It is sufficient in and of itself. So yeah, Adventists weren't doing a good job teaching these things. There was a lack of common sense, a lack of really wrestling with and understanding Ellen White, as she understood herself. There was a failure by pastors and other church leaders to correct people who were exalting Ellen White too much. They just kind of let these things slide, it seems. Charles Thompson, a union president, realized this at the conference and said, quote, if we had always taught the truth on this question, we would not have any trouble or shock in the denomination now. But the shock is because we have not taught the truth and have placed the testimonies on a plane where she says they do not stand. We have claimed more for them than she did, end quote. Daniels chimed in, quote, I suppose some people would feel that if they did not believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible, they could not have confidence in it. I am sure there has been advocated an idea of infallibility in Sister White and verbal inspiration and in the testimonies that has led people to expect too much and to make too great of claims, and so we have gotten into difficulty." End quote. Here Daniels is telling us two things. First, that some Adventists feel that they have to hold on to verbal inspiration or mechanical dictation view of the Bible or else they're going to lose their faith. This this may tell us why this issue was so hotly debated, why people would say such harsh and hurtful things about church leaders, which we'll get into next time, because they felt that if they were wrong about the mechanical dictation view, then all of Christianity was wrong too. It all just falls down. They put the weight of their faith on this doctrine, on this ideal. And it was too much. The second thing Daniels does, of course, is agree with Thompson that we have claimed more for Ellen White's writings than she did. Daniels and Thompson were prophetic with a little P. And basically they were saying, we have allowed the wrong things to be taught about Ellen White, and now we are reaping the whirlwind. We're reaping the result of our mistake. And as soon as those words were spoken, it's almost like it just started happening all over again. Alberto Tim would later write that from the 1920s to the 1950s, Adventists essentially just kept their head in the sand about any errors in the writings of Ellen White. And it was only a matter of time before people once again found some and raised the issue that Ellen White, for instance, was a plagiarist. Now, when that issue came up, that really wasn't new, okay? Daniels and Prescott, those people dealt with the issues of plagiarism. generation before them dealt with charges of plagiarism. But Adventism had kept their head in the sand for so many decades by that point that Adventists themselves had largely forgot about that issue. And so when it was raised again, it shocked many Adventists who had been taught that her writings were free of any mistakes, and some Adventists wouldn't recover from the shock, leaving the church because of it. Why? All because Adventists wouldn't have a frank and open conversation about these meetings. Daniels was sitting there in 1919 saying... We haven't had open and frank conversations about these issues, and now we're dealing with a church that is largely hostile. We're dealing with an environment in Adventism that makes an honest, open, fair discussion of these things impossible. Boy, that was a mistake. And then no sooner had they said those words that Adventism began to just kind of repeat the cycle all over again. With that in mind, you you see why I'm saying that the 1919 Bible Conference was a a historical kind of aberration, a a blip on the journey that Adventism was taking. It was a, a prophetic oasis, a moment of clarity, where the leaders of the church briefly paused the film and said, gee, I don't like where this is going. But the film went on, and they were unheeded. Two years after the 1919 Bible conference, Daniels wrote a letter to Judson Washburn trying to repair their broken relationship. Washburn had come down hard on Daniels and hard on the 1919 Bible conference, but Daniels realized he hadn't handled Washburn's criticisms very well, and he apologized. And in his letter, Daniels summed up the spirit of Adventism at that moment in an incisive, honest, brutal critique of the church's culture. And it's kind of long, but it's just so good, so appropriate, so powerful that I want to read it all. Quote, criticism of one another has become all but universal among Seventh-day Adventists. It is a terrible evil in our midst, and the sorrow and shame of it is that the ministers and conference officials of all classes take the lead. They set the example in this wicked thing. I know whereof I speak. I have traveled the world over, visiting conference presidents, mission superintendents, institutional heads, and all lesser officials and ministers and other workers. I know what my ears have heard. I know the time I have spent endeavoring to help workers put away differences and work together in union and brotherly love. I tell you, Brother Washburn, this free, easy, destructive criticism is destroying us. It is robbing the leaders chosen by the people of the confidence of their associates and brethren they must have to advance the cause of God. It is robbing the ministry of the power to work effectually, this cursed thing is blighting and withering everyone and everything it touches, and it has become so easy and general that very little in this cause escapes it. The one direct result of this satanic thing is destruction of confidence. It is a terrible kind of bondage." End quote. With that said, I think it's time we go find our old friend's Judson Washburn and Claude Holmes, and see what they have to say about this, because things are about to get ugly. This episode of the Adventist History podcast is sponsored by Good to Go Media. Good to Go Media wants to invite creative Adventists to their collab film and media conference, being held on September 8th and 9th in Redlands, California. Come here, industry insiders teach you how to finance your project or distribute it or legally protect your project and even how to pitch your dream. And you'll even have a chance to pitch your dream to a panel of judges to win $35,000 in cash. I mean, I doubt they're going to give you cash on the spot, but you know how that works. Collab is all about helping you take your passion for visual media to the next step. So if you need cash or advice or just want to network with others who have a passion for visual media, then this is for you. So go check out GoodToGoMedia.org right now. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is AvenusHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in 7th Avenue's History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at Avenue'sHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay. I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.